Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Rodeo, where we say the quiet part out loud. We have we have Richard Swan with us, the author of Justice of Kings and the Tyranny of Faith from Orbit Books. Hi, Richard. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sonny. Hi, Richard. R Richard, uh, can you give us a bit of an overview of your journey to publication? Um, and, you know, Sunny and I know bits and pieces, but feel free to uh, give a, give the story to us in whatever level of granularity you wish. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you might regret uh, that addendum. Um, oh, I'll I... cut you off. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. And moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> I started... When I was a wee lad, uh, I was born in North Yorkshire in 1989. Um, I started writing as in, I started writing as a child, like a, a young child. Um, but uh, I remember kind of my sort of first concerted effort was in my young teens, um, and I started writing science fiction. And what I considered was a, was a novel then, but actually was probably about a you know, sort of collection of short stories. Um, and it just kind of I I, I sort of decided I was going to write, and I wrote a story, and then I wrote another one, you know, the following year with a friend, um, which ended up being quite long. Um, it was sort of like 150,000 words or something. And then when I was in my, what we would call sixth form, when you're sort of 17, 18 at school, I wrote what would become the kind of the, the blueprint for my my writing ever since. And I wrote a sort of 100, 136,000 word um, space opera, um, which was called Mindscape. And that really um, completely sort of cemented for me how I would approach writing as a, um, as a kind of as a structure as a actually way of kind of getting the words down on, on the page um and i had like a plan you know so the plan that i used for that is is still the kind of the, the format of the plan i use today i use kind of color coding for the different kind of povs which i don't do anymore but i did then um and it was a kind of you know a three-act structure with kind of interweaving storylines and stuff like that so that kind of really set the, the basis of how i would approach writing ever since and then I, after that, I sort of spent about two or three years on Black Library fan fiction forums, writing huge amounts of Warhammer 40,000 fan fiction, about five or six novels worth. Um, and then that forum went down, they, they closed it. Um, and so then I returned to kind of my own my own IP, if I can use that. And, that, and, and there followed my self-publishing phase. So I, I self-published some stuff um, for a couple of years, three or four years. And then, uh, yeah, and then so about, I think it was about 18 books at that point. And then uh, book number 19 was was The Justice of Kings, which um, I, 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 you know, when I wrote The Justice of Kings, I kind of sent it to a friend and I said, hey, you know, hey, what do you think of this? And he said, um, 
you know, I think it's, he said, I think it's really good. And I said, oh, I might just self-publish this one as well. And he said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, try and get it, try and get an agent or try and get it published for six months. And if you don't, um, if you don't get anywhere with it, then you can, you can always try and you can always self-publish. That's always an option for everybody. Um, and, that, and that turned out to be really good advice. And so I, I tried to get an agent and um, yeah, it's been, it's been about a 20 year journey. And um, and in that time, always the goal was traditional publication. You know, that was always the sort of the guiding star. Um, and uh, and weirdly enough, also Orbit. You know, I think that the first book I submitted when I was about 14, uh, I sent a book into Orbit because I had a connection there. A friend of my grandma's, my grandma's neighbor knew someone who worked at Orbit, weirdly, editorial. And so I sent them this dreadful kind of teenage written manuscript. And I was like, hey, yeah, I love a book deal. And they were like, God, oh, no, thanks. Um, but, and it was a letter. You sent the manuscript off. This was only, even when I was a teenager, it was a manuscript in a jiffy bag. And they sent the letter back saying, you know, no, thanks. So I wish I'd kept that letter, actually. I should have had it framed. But um, yeah, so that was that was it. You know, in a nutshell, you know, the, that 20 years sort of from start to finish that was my journey it was a very painless process for me um and i only learnt. <laughs> sorry people, people are gonna love you richard <laughs> i know it's a, <laughs> it's a story i don't sort of volunteer that often um because i only learn months after the fact because of course you know as writers i was never part of any writing group or critique group or writer's circles or workshops or whatever i never did any of that writing was always always been a very solitary pursuit for me um and so now i am a published author i know more authors and writers than i have ever done um and so you know and so and now i have a, a much kind of keener eye on kind of the industry and what goes on in it and i had no idea that people could be waiting on submission for months even years sometimes like that was i had no idea that that was a thing um because my personal journey was so smooth um and so yeah the agent thing i submitted it to i submitted it to three agents in the end i think it was three one guy i, I think i've never heard back constant you look like you might say something all right i'm watching scott's face Oh my and then they just uh, wheeled this big dump truck of of money outside my house, uh, <laughs> and they said, "Richard, please just write books in perpetuity." Here's a blank check. Um, <laughs> I um I applied for one agent. I'm I know I don't even remember his name, but I never heard. But it was a kind of open, almost like an open window um or like a competition or something i don't know what it i can't even remember what it was but that went nowhere um and then i applied for what i did was i just went on the internet and i just literally googled science fiction fantasy agents um and a bunch of names came up and they were lists you know, listicles and things and i was like right this will do i just picked one um <laughs> no idea what i was doing at all just picked one um you know one came up and um, <laughs> I applied for him and he said no, he passed on it. So I did get one rejection, to be fair. <laughs> and then uh, the second agent I applied to was, was Harry Ellingworth, the um, DHH agency in London. So, but I applied, you know, I, I sent him a, an email. He asked for the full manuscript. Then he asked to have a phone call and um, and I just you know, immediately accepted. You know, we had a kind of conversation. He was like, I'd love to represent you. And and it, it didn't occur to me even slightly to shop around either. Um, I just said, yep, this guy seems like he's, he knows his stuff. He's legit. And he and he is like, he's brilliant, yeah, yeah. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> he's like a real, he's, a, he's an excellent agent. Absolutely no problems with him at all. 
glad that I have him if you're listening, Harry. He, um, he's definitely <laughs> not just you with a different email address. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I am Mr. Snrub. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's he's great. And I'm really glad that, but it, but it was, but it was complete chart i didn't know agent shopping i just you know i got harry um i was like fantastic and i was vibrating with excitement i couldn't sleep that night i was like oh my god it's happening it's happening it all seemed like you know from there it was it was smooth sailing and to be fair it was um <laughs> <laughs> so i was right to be excited um <laughs> and then we went on sub uh, so we spent about a month or two I spent about a month or two on edits and uh, went on sub, but he submitted it to the big five to start. And I think because it was August, I think a bunch of them were on holiday. Um, and it went to James at Orbit and I, he came back quite quickly. So I think it went out late August. And, and from what I've seen, the email chain between him and Harry, and I think James came back maybe a week and a half later or something saying, I like it. Keep me, keep me posted. You know, if you hear from anyone else, any other editors, let me know. And then a deal came in almost exactly one month after we sent it out on, on the pitch out. And that was a, a preempt. So, you know, that's, um, you know, for those who don't know, that's a kind of, they get in before anyone else gets a chance to make an offer. So they say, here's a big sum of money for you to completely remove the pitch from the market. So that's what happened. And Orbit offered, uh, it was a six-figure sum um, of, of money for the three books. Um, and we did a bit of negotiation to get that number a little bit higher um and uh and yeah and and that was that so it was very very smooth sailing or just just hitting every kind of dream target in the in the space of several months but you know at least someone gets the the dream boat story yeah, yeah. Um, and for me that's part of it. it's like i know you've not had a chance to hear the last three episodes but basically there's probably more bad stories than good in publishing but good Girl. stories do happen mm. and sometimes things work out and that is what we all hope for things did fall into place very nicely but they there is the culmination of a lot of work as well like a lot of i've not written 18 books so you know <laughs> no sure and it's and it's it, 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 and it's not you know that's not the be all and end all of course and some people can just write one book and it'd be wonderfully good and i think because but a huge part of the reason why i've written so many books is because i've been doing it for so long mm. um you know for the longest time it was just a hobby for me um yeah but it, it sounds but like it, you had a you had a wild adolescence <laughs> stories i could tell you uh -huh. um, well yeah, you yeah. did yeah if these walls could tell... <laughs> the, the, the more interesting stories i could tell you <laughs> yeah no I, I i totally get what you mean like hmm. you have definitely put in the work and i i think that shows right i've read your uh books and unfortunately loved them <laughs> thank um, you scott yeah, Scott and then Richard are nemeses officially for this. Yeah, we hate right. one another in secret. Yeah, we just no, it, it, is it a hate or is it a sexual tension? We're we're all undecided. Uh -huh. <laughs> Richard seems to uh, attract a whole lot of uh, nemeses, but no, it's it, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shut up, Richard. Uh, <laughs> really, I I uh, I really like Richard. Um, for the record, and that can go on record. Um, <laughs> I the, don't like you, Scott. I appreciate that too. <laughs> Honesty is very valuable. Um, the funny part of that story is that when things go wrong, right? Like I, I would say they did for me and they do for so many others. I, I think the temptation or the tendency, at least in my case, is to look back and think, what could I have done better? What, where could I have mitigated the risk? 
uh, what, you know, I, I should have researched more. I should have known more. I should have been more involved, whatever. So it is really just <laughs> hilarious to hear that you picked agents off a random list. <laughs> <laughs> you, sent, you know, it was some yeah. friend that read your book and was like, no, you shouldn't self-publish this one like the yeah. other 18. You should you should actually <laughs> submit this. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah okay. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get this one published. If you, if you think that's a good idea, I'll do it. <laughs> if, if you insist, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, that's probably yeah. right. I, I, oh, that's, I, I, that's good. It is, you know, and I think, um, like I say, but also it was about hitting the market at the right time as well. And so... So much of it is complete luck, and I think, um, you know, there was I saw chatter online about oh medieval, medieval fantasy, which of course the Empire of the Wolf series, which is you know, Justice of Kings, Tyranny of Faith, um, which very much is this is a late medieval kind of fantasy, and there was this whole idea of oh well, medieval fantasy has kind of had its day. We're all looking for other things now, and I I, I don't think that's true at all. Um, and when I was talking to my editor about it, when we had our first conversation after the deal was all kind of signed and we were getting into the editorial process, and he was saying what you know what grab what grabbed him about about the book, what he liked about it specifically, and, and why they offered such a large sum of money for it, um, was um, it was what the, they used the phrase familiar but different, mm -hmm. um, and I think that is absolutely like spot on correct. You know, if you look at fantasy the genre as a genre and what fantasy readers like you know you it's very rare that you get something that is really kind of esoteric off the wall zany and occasionally occasionally it works and it works very well um but nor more often than not you, what you're seeing is broadly the same sort of thing being published you know the same sort of walled medieval cities knights on horseback swords and sorcery um, and what they liked about mine was it just had an angle, yeah. So the, it's yeah. familiar. It's we know all of the tropes. There's nothing incredibly unique about the setting in the in the Empire of the Wolf. It's it's a kind of broad kind of Holy Roman Empire, sort of Anglo-Saxon kind of medieval European setting that we are all very familiar with. Um, but it but it's fantasy lawyers, right? And we haven't seen that before, or if we have, you know, not in any great kind of detail or not in the same way. And that was the hook, you know, it was, yeah, that's okay, medieval, nothing groundbreaking there. Oh, fantasy lawyers who do magic. That's really cool. You know, we have, and so it was, it was to me and to my editor and to Orbit more broadly, it was about hitting the, the broad notes, but injecting something interesting and unique. And because I was a lawyer, you know, I was a litigator for sort of 10 years, I was able to bring a lot of knowledge to that. And so they had a sort of very similitude to it that, you know, you wouldn't get as someone who was an on lawyer, say. Um, and I think that's always, you, know, you can always tell when someone is an expert, you know, when a doctor writes like a kind of a novel or whatever, you know that they know what they're talking about. And and so I, I think I was able to kind of bring that to, to the book and it, and it, um, you just, it, it had that angle. And I think, you know, if, if we're giving listeners or writers advice or whatever, it's, it's find the angle, you know, what they call the high concept, isn't it? The, you can still do medieval fantasy, you can do any kind of fantasy, but what's the the new thing the new slant that you're kind of putting on it i think is 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 why in my case it was as as successful as it was i think i, I probably fall on the other side where i went full out on the uh, the weird a little bit uh, <laughs> but yeah you know, i mean i'll get into more because I, I do think that basically the the ways in which my book 
hit list in the UK. I can't talk about the US side because I didn't hit list there. Um, a lot of that was out of my control, but at least as far as the writing went, I did, I kind of, I, I don't know. I think I had this approach, like any idea can work and it's structure that's commercial. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it has worked for me so far. Mm. Um, so I spent a whole year reading thrillers because thrillers are the most commercial genre. And I was trying mm. to understand why people like them, what makes them compelling, what how they draw draw the plot forward, how they draw the reader in. And I had this belief that you could pair a thriller structure with a fantasy setting, even if that fantasy setting is a traditionally dead genre because at the time contemporary fantasy was seen as dead. Uh, and th this is how you've ended up with a, a book about vampires who eat books but it's also like a thriller and um i kind of was gambling on the fact that if you can be cross genre you do get a broad audience um but you know everyone's trying to do that kind of thing aren't they to some extent i, I don't know how much people think about market when they write i don't i'm not sure i know that i think about it a lot because to me, the, the point of writing a book is to communicate with other people. And the way you do that is to have more readers. And the way you have more readers is to be accessible at different levels. Mm. Uh, I didn't think about the market. That's interesting because I didn't think about the, the market at all. And I think a, a huge part of that for me was just the way I've approached writing. And because I've been doing it for so long, I didn't sit down as like a 30-year-old and think, right, my, my now my life's goal is to you know tell a story and have it published. I think, And I'm sorry, and I don't think that that was what you did either. No, no, no. Um, I think but, you, but, I think in isolation and that's very helpful in a way that you can mm. develop your own voice. And, mm. you know, I started writing at the same time I started looking into publishing. So I have always been shaped by the agent quest, the querying, the rejection right. letters that say not marketable, not marketable, not accessible, not commercial. Mm. Uh, and that I, I won't say it does damage. I, I will say that it shapes the, the way that you write and the things that you write for. And I don't think that's always good. Um, there's definitely something to be said for developing you kind of your art and your voice without that hideous publishing influence <laughs> commercial hanging over you. I think that's absolutely right, and, I, the, and I, the reason I agree with that is because so I, and, and again, I've never I've never done that. I've never written to market. I've never I'm very late to the the publishing process, um, and so I've always I either hitherto I've always just written for myself as a hobby and, and read my own stories and enjoy them, or when I was self publishing, even when I was self publishing back in sort of 2015, my my space opera, I never had any kind of editorial because now you know these days with the, the indies they get like they hire freelance editors and they have cover artists and it's a it's a cottage industry of you know freelancers who kind of come together you know. And have all of the apparatus, same apparatus as a as a publishing house, but it's all just you know freelancers coming together, sort of briefly coalescing around novels. But I didn't have any of that. I, I hired a proofreader, so there'd be no like errors and mistakes. And in, in but I never had a, any kind of editorial oversight or anything. And it was all very much just like a, this is my book. You know, I, I've enjoyed writing it, and let's just see what happens. Um, and I think for me personally, and I'm not saying either way is right or wrong. I think for me personally. Um, when you have spent so long writing and, and you've only ever really been writing for yourself and you have developed your voice in that more organic way um what tends to happen i said this to someone else the other day um if you write a write if you write what you want to write if you love what you're writing you will write a good book good books uh are commercial books and commercial books sell um you know and it's obviously a bit reductive to say that but i mean i think it's broadly true and i you know as you no, so you know, I've been writing yeah. a um, 
a contemporary novel which I've absolutely loathed um, yes. writing and uh, I've absolutely hated the, the process of writing that and it's been a real drag and it's been so difficult to write it um, and that is me writing to market that that's me writing what I think a commercial thriller should look like and it's been excruciatingly painful I've absolutely hated the creative process of that and it's, I finally finished the thing yesterday um, that was my yeah, process for trying to write an epic fantasy as well and why I bailed on at me and even though epic fantasy is a better sale I just couldn't do it um but yeah I guess it's that you you got to draw the line for what you you're willing to do on it yeah right um but I you know I I, I so I've never went to market and at one time I I have and god help me if this ends up being my most popular book I'm going to jump off a bridge but um <laughs> the I'll one time I <laughs> Yeah, that's a binding contract. You can't it's, uh, void for illegality. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, the one time I did try and write to market, I, I, I suffered greatly. Um, you know, even my creatively, I, I, I detested the process. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, my advice would be, you know, never write to what you think the market wants. Just write the book that you fucking love, because that will end up being your best work. So this is really interesting because I, you know, being friends with you both have have tried to look objectively at what I enjoyed in in each of your books and what may have contributed. And you hit on every aspect that I had uh, come up with. And in, in particular, you both seem to to enjoy, uh, you know, the the high concept thing of, of a distinguishable uh theme or or elevator pitch whatever that comes across very quickly but what i think doesn't happen as much as you you might think in genre fiction is the depth that you both talked about and uh you know people talk about not just writing what you love like you're talking about but writing what you know right mm. and in your case richard you mentioned that uh, fantasy lawyers uh, <laughs> so was your thing, right? And, yes. and you really could and did uh, write about that uh, authoritatively because you understand that world and you could kind of, uh, mm. you know, model your experience in a fantasy setting. And it's obvious, at least to those of us like me who uh, aren't great students of history, it's obvious that you had a, at least a rudimentary understanding of sure. um, several, uh, you know, empires or uh, civilizations in the past. Absolutely. Studied them to some at, some degree, mm -hmm. and you had something to say about, uh, you know, how they formed, how they functioned, uh, and in the end, how they uh, might decline, right? Mm. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And you, Sun Yi, you know, your book was... It, it, I, <laughs> I know you're very, very humble about your book, but in my opinion, uh, it was extremely powerful because of the the aspects of motherhood and parenthood uh, and what it looks like to uh, care for a child, even when the, the circumstances aren't ideal and the depths that somebody would go to to uh, protect their own, uh, even when that might not be quote unquote uh, you know, for the, the greater good of, of a, any given society, um, what it might be like to, to be a relatively oppressed person, et cetera. And so I, I, you know, we talk about write what you love, but 
I think, at least to me, that aspect of both of your writing came through very, very clearly and very powerfully where it was obvious, even though it's not, you know, you writing necessarily your, necessarily your life story or projecting yourself into the book. It was very obvious that both of you did harness your own uh, understanding of a, a certain set of uh, potential situations and, and put that into your, your writing and it, it worked, right? I think, yeah, certainly some of the earliest writing advice I got was write what you know. Um, and I actually hate, I hated that advice um, because I was, oh, I just wanted to write about spaceships and, you know, people getting blown up and stuff. And I didn't know anything about that, um, except for what I'd you know, seen it in cinema and, and played on computer games. Um, so it's very aggravating to find that that actually was good advice um, all these years <laughs> later. <laughs> I think, I think what you, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. And I think what, if when you do bring something that you do know a lot about into your fiction you know it adds that sort of quality to it but you you can absolutely write quality fiction without knowing about something you know you just got to research it right um sure. i remember a good example i think i is um i thought william gibson in pattern recognition did an excellent job of describing kind of a near a london like a near future london or a sort of contemporaneous london and it transpired he'd never been there or certainly not for the purposes of writing this book he had just mm -hmm. You know, got his Google Street View out, spoken to some people who did live there, and he'd done an excellent job of, I had assumed he had spent two or three weeks in the city, but he hadn't at all. Um, and so it is possible, I think, when you're doing a deeper dive into a character, um, you know, or, or a, you know, situation or whatever, that you do have personal experience and it. It does, it, you know, it obviously adds to a lot of, it rounds out the novel in a way that maybe you can't quite achieve if you, you don't share that experience. But it's not to say it's insurmountable. The authenticity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so one of the other aspects you both touched on was uh, structure. And mm -hmm. I know, Sunny, you in particular are, you pay very close attention to structure. Uh, do either or both of you care to go into kind of some of the familiar patterns or uh, patterns you've settled on in your in your work and what seems to work for you. Senya, I know you talked about uh, thriller structure, but what does that mean to you? Um, I write to something that we've talked a bit about in, in private, which is kind of the reader's journey. And it's not a set template the way hero's journey is, but it's basically this concept that everything in the book exists to engage the reader. And if that means the plot is told out of chronological order, I will do that. If that so that I can control the withholding information. If that means changing point of view, changing tense, I don't worry about it. I just do it. Um, the only thing that matters to me is propelling the reader through the story to tell it in the most engaging way and to keep their interest. And I think if you actually read some of the, the thrillers that have done really well, they have sometimes surprisingly characters with flat arcs. Um, but the story is told in such a way that the, the reader is experiencing an arc of emotion, even if the character isn't experiencing an arc of progression. And so for me, that was an important part of writing. I don't know if that works or if the book was a fluke. We'll find out. With the, the next one, <laughs> I do tend to write in four or five act structures because I like having a double climax. That sounds rude. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? Like, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and just I guess things like that. I'm, I'm trying to stay out of craft too, too much. But yeah, um, 
those are things that work for me. I try not to be too formulaic. I think there's a risk of that happening. You can fall into your own traps and, and kind of ruts. Yeah, I've I've read at least most of that second book, as you know, and book one, your first book was not a fluke. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> I think um I think for me personally when I especially because I've written a lot of trilogies, or certainly that's kind of like my default setting, I always think of in terms of structure, you know, book one needs to stand relatively by itself because that's the book that most people will read. Um, and then, you know, you always get drop off, you know, and it can be quite a significant drop off between sort of books two and three. So for me, a trilogy is book one and then books two and three are really two halves of one story. Um, and so when I was approaching book one, I was like, I want to have an investigation that is basically self-contained so that by the end there is a resolution that a reader can feel satisfied with um but then a broader trilogy arc um which spans the, the whole series and i tried to kind of mi mimic that same structure in book two because i thought it worked very well for book one and i wanted to have another investigation in book two that you know started and finished within that book so again having something that concludes because you know notoriously lots of book twos don't really conclude they just set up book three um and uh you know, <laughs> there's actually a detestable phrase called <laughs> middle book syndrome which i've come to completely loathe because it's part of the tropification of reading and reviewing books is coming up with kind of phrases that often don't really apply and so the sort of a, a, the success of a, a book will live or die on how how much middle book syndrome you know how what percentage it's a completely nonsensical phrase i hate it but anyway um so i wanted to avoid that sort of thing where you have a book without a beginning and an end by giving it a beginning and an end at least internally so it's contriving for that to be the case um but really books two and three are two sides of one coin more much more so than you have a trilogy but really it's book one and then books two and three rather than you know book one two three um yeah. so i was conscious of that structure as i approached it um and uh, I, 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 you know, and then within the books, I, I follow a classic three act structure and I always have done. Um, so that was how I sort of tackled the Empire of the Wolf. And I think, to be fair, my sort of self-published stuff had exactly the same thing as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the, the way I go about things. But um, that's not to say I haven't experimented with different structures before. One of the things I have done, a bit like Sunyi with her thriller kind of examinations, is I, I, like, I do like to end chapters on cliffhangers um and sometimes it can wind people up a little bit because it can be a bit kind of um a bit cheeky and a bit kind of you know lame if you do it too much but it's a great way of just cooking keeping people hooked what you have to avoid is having it be a false climax so like just resolving it in a really lame way at the very start of the next chapter um because then you're just going to piss people off um but i did try and kind of add a little little bit of a, a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter to kind of pull people through the novel at quite a quite a quick pace yeah yeah no i've noticed uh i'm not quite all the way through uh tyranny of faith but i've noticed the similar structure to mm. book one not hard to notice but i've noticed yeah, sure yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, no i mean i mean that in a very good way but no um, i know you do I, know. <laughs> a child could have noticed this uh yeah. this, <laughs> this simple structure <laughs> uh indeed Okay, so uh, if if you two are okay with it, uh, I'll I'll move it. I'll move us into what I think people are tuning into this podcast for, which is 
you know, the, the business side of it and your yes. experience with your publisher and things. So going kind of to the beginning, Richard, what did, you know, what did the contract negotiations look like with Orbit when it came in? And did you, uh, I'm guessing the answer is no, based on uh, what you said thus far, but did you do anything or, or see anything that made you optimistic that they would follow through with everything that you expected of them? Or was it really just, oh, that's a good amount of money, let's sign? <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was definitely an element of, well, that's a good amount of money, let's sign, um, for sure. And I think, I, I, you know, my agent was obviously optimistic in terms of when he got the manuscript, he obviously liked it because he offered to represent me. I don't think either of us were expecting the deal that we got, um, you know, out of the gate. And so the contract itself was, you know, probably a pretty standard contract. I don't remember Harry saying anything like, oh, this is a bit weird. And, and I think a huge, uh, the fact that it was Orbit, you know, a large, reputable science fiction fantasy publisher did a huge amount of the heavy lifting to us. You know, I never, I and I come from a corporate background as well. I was a management consultant, I was a lawyer. So I, you know, and contracts are my bread and butter. So I, I didn't, the only thing I looked in that contract and I thought, I don't like that, was the reserve on returns um, clause, which for the uninitiated is, uh, so uh, the way I understand it, and Sun, you or Scott, you know, maybe you'll be able to correct me if this is wrong. But the way I understand it, it is um, th there came a point so some years ago where publishers and bookshops kind of reached this agreement, and that was kind of supposed to be the best of both worlds. Where, in order to give everybody certainty, a publisher will say, "I want to sell you Waterstones or you Barnes and Noble, you know, ten thousand copies of X book." Um, and Waterstones were like, well, there's no way I'm going to buy 10,000 copies of it because we might only shift five and then we have to, then we've bought 5,000 copies we're never going to shift. And so the solution was, okay, well, you can return the books that you don't sell. But hold on a second, that seems like a terrible deal then for the publisher and also the author. So then they capped that to 12 months. So you can return the books that you don't sell, but only within a year. And I think that's, unless I'm wrong, I think that's kind of an industry standard it is in the states i think in sorry it is in the uk in the states i think it's as long as the book is in print but functionally that's a year or less in a lot of cases yeah right because i mean the hard it's certainly with the hardcover for example. so uh, in my in my case when i look at the data i only have sort of granularity on this on the data from the, on my us book sales but when i look at the returns of the books that went back to orbit they were like 95 percent of those were hardbacks and i think obviously hardbacks are the the most difficult thing to sell especially in, in debut so that would that would make sense to me i think broadly speaking it's it maybe it's codified as a year in the uk but realistically it's not going to be much longer than a year in the states either way um because it's mostly the hardbacks that go back anyway um but that but the reserve on the returns clause was like if a book of yours is returned to the publisher they pass that back onto you so you so they reserve a portion of your royalty payments to account for the fact that some of your books may be returned to the publisher and i sort of saw that clause and i was like that seems like bullshit to me that's that's a kind of like a that's a risk that the publisher should shoulder not the author um but you know apparently that was a completely standard clause in, in industry contracts and so i just had to eat it um but the but this contract itself was, was I'm given to understand a very standard one, and there was obviously some negotiations about getting royalty rates up and yeah. all the rest of it, and the, the yeah. purchase of the you know, all of that. So all those sort of numbers went up you know, to a degree. Um, but in terms of my personal involvement, 
it was very minimal. I obviously had to approve the contract before we agreed to it because it was my name on it. Um, yeah. And in terms of did I trust Orbit to fulfill their end of the bargain? You know, absolutely. And and they have, you know, to be fair. Um, and well, so I, and the, oh, the reason I asked that is because that's not always the case, right? No, no, right. Yeah. So, and I happen to to know that Sunyi, I, you know, you had a very good marketing plan um, that was put together and presented to you. And Richard, I don't know whether you had a plan like that, but I know that Orbit did some really cool things for uh, your release. Were those, you know, were those marketing plans or even just verbal ideas for how this was going to be promoted? Was that communicated to you two at time of acquisition and contract, or did that come later? Because our preempt had to be done for tour in about three or four hours, I went on trust with Naomi, where Naomi basically said, Lindsay is a friend. I think this person is right for you, and I trust Naomi, and I do think Naomi's right. I think I think there's a reason why so many people want Lindsay for an editor. She's amazing. On the yeah. Harper side, the UK rights for us went a lot slower. Um, so I, I'll, I'll mention this distinction because I think we, we have slightly different deals. Where I, th I think Richard's has sold world rights to Orbit and that has some yep. benefits in some things. Um, but I'll let him explain that in a minute. So my, my rights were parceled up. My UK, my UK rights went to Harper Voyager. And there was kind of a mini auction between Titan and Harper, which I don't think Titan realistically could have won. But anyway... Harper actually sent a document to us while that was going on because auctions are very slow in publishing. They take days. And this document was something they called a marketing deck. And I had never seen a marketing deck in my life because I'm not a marketing person. It was like it was a series of PowerPoint slides where they detailed basically their vision for the book, how they imagine marketing it, the kind of readership it would have, the kind of blurbs it would have, the kind of cover and art and the things that they could offer and that they could bring to the table. And when I saw that document, you know, when you get those rejections from editors where they say, I don't have a vision for the, this manuscript. That was the moment where I understood what that word meant. That vision was this kind of document. That vision is, it, you need, basically when editors say, I have or don't have a vision for a book, they're thinking the whole package. They can envision cover, marketing, blurbs, campaigns, adverts. Um, they can see what this book would look like in totality were they to pick it up. Yeah, we had we had that strong sense from from Harper from that, and when I could see their vision for the book, you know, because I don't have marketing vision, I don't have a fucking clue how to sell anything. Um, it, I was like, okay, wow, I didn't, I, I've never seen my book in this light before as a product, the way that they see it, and I was kind of impressed. So, you know, we did have those reassurances on both sides. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I had a, a, a sort of similar experience actually. I think, um, you know, after the deal was done, I had conversations with marketing the team both in in new york and in, in london um and then they also presented my agent asked for but they were going to give me one anyway a marketing plan um, which was a sort of fairly granular kind of email which detailed what they were going to do both on social media and you know separately in terms of um stuff that i wouldn't see so they said like like you know you'll see the social media stuff because we'll tag you in it whatever but and they also gave me like a social media guide as well like this is this is the kind of thing you should be doing and you should, we should, you should change your twitter handle to your name for example because it wasn't my name before it was like zwan like zwan for example change your twitter have a photo professionally taken blah 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 um but so but we're also going to be doing this behind the scenes we're going to be spending some money on you know, ad place, tar targeted ads, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, they did like a, you know, in conversation with 
RJ Barker, I think it was, they set, sort of set that up at the time, you know, contemporary of mine at Orbit. Um, and they, you know, did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so we had several meetings about it, um, about their, their, their ideas for how it would go. Um, and had the same thing again, actually, for Tyranny of Faith. We had a call, you know, a couple of months ago about, and they were just telling me, right, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. Um, you know, just so you know, we are doing stuff. You're not going to be seeing a lot of it because it's going to be like targeted ads on things like Facebook and Amazon and whatever. But this is what's happening. Um, so I was really, you know, pleased and, and impressed with those efforts. Um, you know, felt like they really kind of were, were putting their money where their mouth is. And I think also, Scott, actually, before we came on, you mentioned, and I had forgotten, um, but they did the uh, limited art, uh, edition arcs as well, which was a nice touch. It was the, um, they did a, the, a run of 100 signed arcs. So I went into Carmelite House, which is on the Victoria Embankment on the Thames, um, which is where the Hachette office is. Um, it's a beautiful office. And uh, went in and they had a stack of 100 you know, special edition arcs and I signed them and numbered them. And that was a nice, it created buzz, right? And I've seen those books be traded in the aftermarket now for, you know, for actual sums of money, which is maybe unethical, but I thought it was really cool. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so they, 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 they did a good job of, of building buzz and telling me what buzz they were going to build. Um, so I was, all, and I was happy, you know, I was happy with all of it. I, I didn't have a, a problem with any, I never felt like I was being kept in the dark at all. Um, yeah. I think the marketing meetings were the first point where I realized how different this route is going to go, because I think, you know, they sent the document and they're like, are we going to have the marketing meeting at this point in the future? And I remember asking one of my critique partners who's mid-list, like, what do you do in these marketing meetings? And she said, well, most What's of us that? don't get marketing meetings. <laughs> what marketing <laughs> meetings? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, that was part of the whole, like, okay, now, now I'm starting to understand the divide and, and how essentially mm. privileged I, I was. Also, I was going to ask a quick question. You don't have to answer, Richard, but am I right in remembering that your contract was joint accounting? And if so, do you feel like explaining that for, for people who are listening? I think well, I think so, and I think I understand what that is. Um, is that so? Basically, you don't earn any royalties until all three books have, have earned out. So it's not like that's right. yeah, and so right. I, that's it. So we sell world rights, um, which is a slightly different thing anyway. But I'll explain that too. So in the sort of because I know that my agent initially offered UK rights, or maybe it was UK and Commonwealth. And this is I this idea of it's better for you as an author if you can parcel out your rights because mm -hmm. then more money flows to you and it, and it flows to you more or less and much more quickly as well so with world rights what you are doing is basically giving up everything all over well as it sounds all over the world global rights to be published in any country so orbit own the rights to the empire of the world trilogy to exploit that novel in whatever form audio you know mm. ebook whatever everywhere in the world um now that's not always a good deal for people it was a good deal for me because they offered me a lot of money for it. And so we, were, we eventually, Harry and I went around the houses on it, but we decided to, to go for it. And I think Orbit, they like doing that because they're split across the UK and the US anyway. And there were some specific contractual benefits that were specific to Orbit as well in doing that. So things like US royalties, because normally if, you're, if your publisher owns the rights and they sort of, you know, shop your book in say Germany or France or whatever, you're publisher then steps into the shoes of your agent essentially so they're taking a commission on foreign sales as well before you they pass the royalties mm -hmm. on to you whereas with orbit they don't do that in the us 100 percent of it comes to you so there was a okay. tangent and, and most of my sales are in the us so you know it's, it's orders of magnitude more than it is anywhere else so that worked out very nicely for me um because i earn more money 
personally on my US sales as a result of being with Orbit, having sold them world rights. The downside to a world rights contract, and I'm, I'm sure there may be some agents or somebody listening who think this guy hasn't got a fucking clue what he's talking about. Um, well, but I come think... on and correct us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Prove me wrong, kids. Um, is, you know, so we sold, we sold a book in like five or six territories. So there was a Spanish edition that just came out. There's a German edition that just came out. Other editions are in the pipeline. There's a Russian, a Czech, Polish editions, all ill translation editions. The downside to that is, um, for me personally, in terms of financials, the German advance was substantial. It was a lot of money. Um, and it was going to be and, and is a lead title for you know a large German publisher. Um, the downside is that money now goes to Orbit. It doesn't go to me. Um, and so Orbit use that money obviously to pay off the advance that they paid me but what it means is every advance or payment i earn in all the other all these other countries goes flows through orbit and they use that to reduce the overall advance now the overall advance was substantial so i have nothing to complain about but that money in another life with a different contract yeah. would have come straight to me um so that's the that's the difference so it's not it's not necessarily a good thing if you're going to get like you know the all bells and whistles lead debut treatment then it can be a really nice offer um but it may not They're necessarily not publish be your book in other countries though <laughs> well, well and that's it and if they decide to just sit on the book if it underperforms and they sit on it and they decide well we're not going to spend money on translating it which is expensive um you know then then you're stuffed because then you then that's it the book will then die um and so but i knew that orbit and harry um in his conversations with orbit and james had, had said you know well look i'm not going to give you world rights if you don't then exploit them um and obviously no one's going to guarantee that in the negotiation stage but i had the sense you know that they would make good on that and they have um but mine is mine is a mm. mine's a best case scenario like few people will get as good a run as I have had um you know there, and there are lots of I'm at one end of the spectrum and lots of people will be at, yeah in the middle yeah of the and, other end. and I mean in in a good case right if, I don't know about best case but in in a success case you'll eventually see the money still roll through to you in the form of royalties and it's fine yeah right yeah yeah but the the risk you run right with orbit paying off their advance and obviously orbit paying off their uh, expenses to get your book to market is that they they can then relax right yeah and that that seems to be the golden rule in publishing is uh, money hanging over a publisher's head is your only real form of guarantee right. Um, yeah. Exactly. I think that one of the, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a double side, you know, it's, there's all these things, there's, there's a risk, you know, and you have to, you have to take yep. and manage that risk as, a, and, as, and I was working in you know, at the full time, I'm a full time writer now, but I was working as a lawyer. So there was much less, I was earning much more as a lawyer than I was as an author. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I completely agree. I think one of the one of the good things about getting a, a large advance, there's a risk, right? There's a risk that you don't earn out. Um, and if you don't earn out, and, and one thing that this industry has taught me is that n nobody is untouchable. You know, if, if your book underperforms, they'll drop you like a sack of shit. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so, but one of the good things about being paid a lot of money is that it, it's incentivized as a publisher to recoup what is to them a loss, an accounting mm -hmm. loss, 
the advance um, is to make good that loss. Now they can make that good. They can make good that loss much more quickly than you will. Um, you know, Orbit will have already earned. They will. I'm almost certain they will have at least broke even. They will, on, yeah. On, on my series, and probably made a healthy profit already with one and a half yeah. books out. Yeah, they um, break even well before you earn out your advance, right? And they're right. I mean, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna always structure it that way. Always. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. And and so and I'm so I'm confident that that's happened. But you know, the corollary to that is if they say, yeah, well, you know, you did, and I'm not saying that they would because they're nice people, but you know, well, yeah, you know, you didn't you didn't earn out, so this time we're only going to offer you half you know it's it's a it's a big kind of it's a big falsehood isn't it it's not it doesn't actually reflect the commercial reality because the commercial reality is they've made their money back and then some but it's a it's it's to stick to the carrot isn't it it's to say well you know you didn't earn out so it's a bit a bit of gaslighting almost that we didn't quite earn out so we're going to reduce the advance of the next payment uh, on, on the next year or not give you one you know that's and that's the that's the yeah. precariousness of 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 the author and i'm not saying that that's what they're thinking but Publishers generally, you know, yeah, it's not in your favor. And at at some point, I'll I'll ask Evan Winter to come on because he has some really good maths for um, the point at which you actually begin to make your publisher a profit. And it's a lot lower than most people think or that publishers Mm. are kind of happy for you to think. Um, And I'll I'll just come back to circle back the the joint accounting thing very briefly, because I think it's interesting for people to know. But yeah, basically, I, I mean, I have a joint accounting contract for Harper, but I have a separate accounting contract for tour and what mm-hmm. that means is that each of my books um is only so i'm on a three book contract and they're each earning out on their own stream uh and to, to illustrate that kind of it's like if you say say you get a two book deal and you know you need ten thousand dollars in sales for each book to earn out the advance book one sells twelve thousand dollars in sales so it earns out um, book two sells $2,000 in sales and doesn't. If you're on a separate accounting contract, you'd be getting royalties from book one and not from book two. If you're on a joint accounting contract, you're not getting any royalties because you haven't earned out the total. So yeah. it's just in most, there's a very, very handful, few cases where separate accounting, sorry, where joint accounting is helpful. But I think it's like 80% of the time, it's a clause invented by Satan to make you sad. And it just doesn't benefit you at all as a writer. Um, but it is kind of standard across the industry. So especially for fantasy and sci-fi, where we tend to be in trilogies and duologies, or even like me, where I'm on a contract with three standalones, everyone will try and get joint accounting out of you. <laughs> yeah, um, It's a tough one. When you, As a brief aside, when you said 80% of the time there, I just saw in Scott's mind the Anchorman quote, it works every time. <laughs> of the time it works every time. <laughs> I knew it was right there. Yeah, in the forefront yeah. of his mind. Um, <laughs> well, so we... I I would absolutely agree. I think you know authors should know that single accounting or or whatever you you call the opposite of joint accounting or basket accounting is always the way to go. Basket accounting, joint accounting always favors the almost always. I guess. I guess maybe somebody could think of a circumstance in which it's good for the author, but it always favors the publisher. One thing I wanted to mention with um, foreign rights, Richard, because you brought that up specifically, having given Mm. world rights, because I have uh, experienced the other side of the spectrum, right? I had a very negative uh, experience with respect to my publisher utilizing the rights that 
they got out of us and that they they wanted when we first signed the contract and wouldn't get mm. back. Anybody signing contracts right now that I've talked to, I've always said, try to get separate reversion clauses for yeah. every format and every version that you can. Mm. So whether, you know, uh, and I don't know whether that's something that publishers will sign. I don't know if that's something that agents will even try to negotiate. You can ask. It, yeah, exactly. You can ask. And if it were me, I would have a separate reversion clause for audio for, audio, um, you know, uh, uh, territory. So my, uh, I signed over world English, not world, but just world English. Right. Right. And, uh, tour didn't publish or shop really, as far as I can tell, uh, my book into the UK market. And so I wish that I had a reversion clause for mm. the UK specifically, and they were very cool um about reverting um audio before uh they had to um but you know every everything that you don't actually have in a contract is something you have to essentially go and beg for after the fact if it doesn't yeah. go the way you hope i think as an uh, as an author you, what you can always safely assume is that this is a, well it's a commercial arrangement right so it, it, this is and this is where the sort of the transparency really should exist within a um within a publisher author relationship and i think orbit you know my editor was always very good at managing my expectations in, in this regard and, and still does you know, he still does manage my expectations constantly he'll never say when we do a deal he'll say if we do a deal you know um, nothing is a given and i appreciate that that um candor um i think once there's a temptation to think that once you're in you're in um and you know in the reality is it's a it's a it's a business transaction and we as authors should have an always have an eye on it as a commercial relationship and it's an it's a it's a one of uneven uh, bargaining positions as well because most authors are desperate to be published and a publisher wants to make money and so when you're looking at a contract or any kind of um you know and i i know contracts intimately when you when you're looking at any kind of contract you can safely assume that it's structured in a way that benefits the publisher over to, and not necessarily to your detriment but that's often what will be the result. And so, you know, there's, there's going to, they're not going to give you anything, you know, for, for free. They're not, they're, if, there's a, if there's any way that they can avoid, like, like any service that you provide or any product you provide, no one is going to give up more than they have to. That's just, yeah. that's just capitalism, right? That's how, how it works. And I, this is not my kind of like, you know, smoking in a kind of dark room, you know, nihilistic kind of, ooh, I'm so edgy. That's just the way the, the capitalism works. You know? So you, every time you look at your contract, you can assume that your publisher is going to be looking to make as much money off you as possible and pay you as little money as they can get away with. It's not because they're bad people. It's because their their duty is not to you. It's to their shareholders. That's the, that, And that's a legal duty. It's not even like a ethical or moral duty they are legally obligated to act in the best interests of their shareholders and the best way you act in the interests of your shareholders is to maximize share value surprisingly mm -hmm. enough and to do that you maximize your profit and one way you maximize your profit is you minimize your costs and your costs as a publisher are your authors you know, the advances yep. that you pay to them um and so that was the, that you know it's a whole it's a separate discussion but the whole idea of that big merger between whoever it was penguin and simon schuster or whatever the idea that that would be good for authors was just complete nonsense. Like it was absolute corporate double think, you know, it was yeah. complete rubbish. It would have been the complete opposite. It would have only been bad for authors because mm -hmm. 
as you know, economics professors have long realized, monopolies and hegemonies are bad. They're bad for competition. They stifle competition, which is why they're illegal in a lot of countries. And so, you know, when you're looking at your contracts, just always bear in mind that no matter how well you get on with your editor or how nice everybody seems and obviously everybody will be nice generally speaking because we're all human beings and we like to be nice to each other until they ultimately yeah until they aren't yep. <laughs> ultimately the answer to the publishing house the publishing house is a company the company answers to its shareholders um and that's the dynamic you are contending with and for as long as you're making money for that company happy days and I will throw out, you know, I do, I really admire and respect all of the individual humans I have worked with in publishing. I think my editors are incredibly smart, interesting, very informed people. They have good opinions on, on you know, the books they're editing and all kinds of things and all the publicists and so on. But, you know, as the author, you are the person is your art and you have to look after it. You have to look after your book and no one will be as invested in your book as you are, not even your agent. Uh, and again, I love my agent and I think they are an amazing person and an amazing advocate, but you're still your own first best advocate for your stuff and, and you should be. And that you're, you know, you can have friendships with people in publishing and you should, and you should respect them and treat them well, but you also, this is separate from having business relationships and looking out for your business interests. Yeah, that's a good distinction. We at the podcast are big fans of the individuals that exist <laughs> yeah. within those corporations. Uh, like, but like I, twice I, you know. if you're on duress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I so, mean, so, so the line is just clicking all of a sudden. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> you know, even even when things haven't gone, you know, exactly as I'd hoped, I've still been very fortunate to work with some fantastic people make fantastic friends on the business side you know especially love my agent and there are some really amazing people at tour but yeah the they exist within a corporate structure and and i think that's the point we're trying to get across is that at the end of the day we don't sign their paychecks the corporation mm -hmm. does and that's going to sway their actions far more than any friendship will if push comes to shove, and sometimes it does. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.